With Canada's first dose vaccination rate now outpacing almost all other countries around the world, and with Canadians feeling more optimistic about the return to normal, our attention is shifting to what we can do to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic in other parts of the world. Today, on the eve of World Refugee Day, we explore what Canada can do to help those in far more vulnerable situations around the world and what Canadians think about it. Welcome back to In Focus with David Coletto. I'm David Coletto. On this episode of In Focus, I'm joined by Sarah Schultz, the Senior Advisor for Government Engagement at World Vision Canada, and Lindsay Gladding, World Vision Canada's Director of Fragile and Humanitarian Programs. Sarah has worked with World Vision for over 12 years as a passionate advocate for the rights of children. Lindsay has more than a decade of experience in diverse humanitarian and emergency settings, having been deployed to Haiti, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Zimbabwe. She has also spent 18 months with World Vision Lebanon as the humanitarian director establishing World Vision's response to the Syrian refugee crisis. This week, my firm Abacus Data released some new polling commissioned by World Vision Canada that explores how Canadians are feeling about the global response to COVID-19 and what they want our government to do to make sure the pandemic ends for everyone, everywhere. Here's my conversation with Lindsay Gladding and Sarah Schultz from World Vision Canada. Well, Sarah and Lindsay from World Vision, thank you for joining the podcast today. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So before we get into some of the details of the survey uh, we did, and, and Lindsay, I'm so um, curious and interested to, to hear your perspective on what's happening on the ground and your experiences around the world. Um, Sarah, maybe you could give us some, some perspective on, on why World Vision Canada commissioned this survey in the first place. Uh, you know, as I noted in the intro, um, we're on the eve of World Refugee Day, which is, which is on Sunday, and, and this is the second survey we've done. But, but, but what specifically... Um, do you see as the real objectives of, of the survey and the other work that, that World Vision's doing in this space? Yeah, we, um, for a year and a half, when I think about it, COVID-19 has, you know, drastically upended all of our lives. And when I say all of us, I mean everyone, everywhere around the globe. And in many ways, that experience of life being unpredictable, of being unstable on a mass scale, was new, was shocking for many of this generation of Canadians. And it, in a way, brought to mind what life can be like in other parts of the world on the regular and is like on the regular. It brought to mind just how interconnected we are, how decisions halfway around the globe actually make a real impact on, for example, whether my kids are able to go to school Mm -hmm. in person or not. So that was real for Canadians. And as an organization that works with children and with communities in some of the world's most fragile places, that's often front of mind for us, but we wanted to understand Canadians' perspectives on that a little bit more, especially in the lead up to World Refugee Day, and understand if, in a way, this was translating into Canadians understanding the situation more broadly, um, if it translated into um, a higher you know, a a different way of thinking about it, and if it meant anything different for what Canadians wanted to do in response, or thought the Canadian government should be part of doing in response to help end COVID everywhere. Yeah, and I think it's a really good point about how small our world now 
really seems. And, you know, the poll was released. It was done before, but it was released on the heels also of the G7 uh, meetings in, in uh, England on the weekend. And you had, which we'll talk about the, the announcements from the G7 leaders on, on vaccine procurement. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've got very clear views on whether that was sufficient. I know the answer. We'll, we'll get to it in a minute. But before we do, I want to just uh, share some of the highlights of that survey and all the details are available on our website, advocacydata.ca. And, um, you know, just as a, as a context, sometimes when we explore issues around international development, you know, international engagement, cooperation, um, people assume, I think incorrectly, that, that generally the public doesn't care all that much about it. And, and certainly when you compare, you know, um, international development up against should I build a new hospital in my town or should you cut my taxes? Certainly it's, it's hard to compete with those. But I do think the pandemic and the, the survey does show the pandemic has, I think, brought a different perspective to people. And, and so what we found, you know, is, is, is really interesting. First is the mood in the country is improving. Canadians anyways are feeling much better about the prospect of this pandemic. Many, many more feel the worst is behind us now. And so there's at least here a sense of relief, right? But that sense of relief is underpinned by a worry about what's gonna come, right? 70% um, of Canadians are thinking at least some of the time about the risk of, a, of new variants coming back to the country um, and developing in other parts of the world. Almost all Canadians in our survey appreciate that living in a refugee or displaced person camp has been and continues to be far more risky um, generally, but also as it relates to the pandemic you know, high density, poor healthcare, few vaccines, uh, the risk is much, much higher. And the consequences of getting COVID are much more grave for those living in those, those, those conditions. Um, but perhaps most important, I think, to your point, Sarah, is, you know, the public really understands that the pandemic won't end until it ends everywhere, right? That's the lesson of the last 16 months. And we're seeing increased numbers of, of new variants, you know, emerging in the UK, as an example, that's delayed their reopening, right? Um, 78% agree that if we don't vaccinate everyone everywhere, the risk of new variants of COVID will grow. There's also an understanding that, you know, uh, three quarters uh, agree that the global economy is interconnected. And as a result, we can't here in Canada recover economically until this pandemic is controlled. So people do see um, a direct consequence of getting this, this pandemic under control everywhere and, and the economic consequences and impact here in Canada. I also think, and we, we did this in the survey, I think I thought it was pretty interesting. We gave respondents a hypothetical and they appreciate that there's a, a real possibility that if the pandemic is not controlled everywhere quickly, that a new, maybe more dangerous, maybe vaccine resistant strain of the virus could develop in those places where it's not under control and make its way back to Canada, right? So the worst case is we all imagine and it's a, bad, it's, a, it's a really good worst case for Canadians, by the way, given the context that we're talking about, is that we're back in some kind of lockdown again in 2020. Finally, I think the survey really points to the fact that there's broad support um, for, for doing more, for whether it's you know, putting a price tag of a billion dollars, Canadian dollars, uh, to help vaccinate those in poorer parts of the world, or waiving IP rights on COVID vaccines, or ensuring that any excess that we have goes to the poorest regions of the country. We, we get 60% or more supporting that kind of action. So in short, I think the survey really shows first that there's broad understanding of the problem. 
Uh, there's deep fears about a return of a deadlier, more resistant strain of the of coronavirus, and and therefore strong support for our government, our federal government in particular, to do more, right, to support those in other parts of the world. So I think the survey really, really shows that that if if there are political leaders out there who want to do this, um, the public is with you. In fact, probably the public is ahead right now of our political leaders in Ottawa um, and and probably political leaders in other parts of the world as well. So. On that note, then, I'm going to come back to you, Sarah, and then, uh, Lindsay, I'll bring you into this conversation in a moment. But, but you've got some thoughts, Sarah, on the G7 uh, meeting. Prime Minister Trudeau announced that Canada is committed to sharing uh, vaccine doses with poorer countries. Um, you know, the $100 million, or sorry, $100 million dose numbers have been thrown around. What's your take on that commitment? Well, here's the situation. It's going to take 11 billion doses of vaccines to hit a target of getting 70% of the world vaccinated by this time next year. So that's the global scope of the need. And I think we all understand the, the need to be able to hit those thresholds as soon as possible and the implications if we don't. The G7 had committed to, come up in, to coming up with 1 billion. They hit uh, you know, a commitment of 870 million. So falling short of that, and half of those would you know, move by the end of this year. So at first blush, G7 wide, this, this isn't enough to solve the crisis that we have in front of us. More is going to be needed and it's going to be needed ASAP, essentially. When it comes to Canada's commitment, Canada committed to sharing of that 100 million, 13 million surplus doses. So actual vaccines in the 13 million amount and 4 million of those would move almost immediately. So that's, that's promising. The more that move now, the more we can get in front of things, the more that we can ensure that you know, doses are with lower income countries who can then start to distribute those um, if they're set up to do so. And, and so that was part of the commitment too. So some doses moving now, it's great, but there's not enough of a clear plan and commitment to upping that, ramping it up as we get into the summer, as we get into the fall. We have enough vaccines procured to be able to vaccinate Canadians five or more times over. And so without affecting the Canadian um, you know, vaccine distribution plan, we can already know which vaccines we can start promising and get moving to developing countries. So in short, we could have done more at this time. Um, to have some vaccines moving now is good, but we could have done more. And we are looking to see that happen. The prime minister has alluded to that. And so we're following that closely. We're engaging Canadians uh, because they wanna be part of that conversation and they care about it. They wanna see Canada commit to more and make that clearer so that more vaccines get moving before the end of this year. And, and in conjunction with the poll that we, we put out together, um, World Vision also put out a new report on um, the situation being faced by refugees and people who have been forced from their homes. Uh, what, what did that report find? Yeah, so this report looked you know, generally at um, the, the state and the trends for refugees, for anybody who has been forced to flee their home globally. We know that that trend is on the rise. It's, you know, at this point, more than 80 million people worldwide. So just in terms of numbers, it's one person forced to flee their home every three minutes. So that's, that's a high number. Um, and these are people who are highest at risk um, due to the, the situation, their living context, due to their health situations, um, highest at risk of 
COVID impacts directly on their health, of new variants emerging, but also of all of the secondary impacts on mental health, on the ability to keep, to, to keep your employment, to be able to put food, healthy food on the table for your family, all of these things. So writ large, these are populations that are highest at risk. And what our report found was that they are lowest priority. Right. That vaccines are not reaching these most vulnerable people, um, and that that can and alongside the abacus poll, we did find that you know Canadians have some misperceptions about just how dire things are. So this yeah. report highlights that um, you know compared to wealthier countries where one in four people have gotten a jab, it's one in five hundred in low-income countries. And World Vision spoke with almost two thousand refugees, so a global poll, as it were. Um, to understand their perspectives, their experience. And out of 2001 in Uganda had received a vaccine. Wow. Almost half of them thought they weren't eligible or hadn't heard anything about vaccine plans. And um, most host countries are having a real challenge with the vaccine rollout. And 40% of them don't even write vac um, refugees into those plans. So they're not even there, they're absent, totally missing. Um, and so that's a huge challenge. It means that vaccines not only aren't getting there, but they aren't even planned for for these populations. So that's a, a, a tremendous risk. And I think, you know, given that we have been told to stay home during this pandemic, it is, you know, I, it's, 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 it's even more challenging that, that home, they don't have a home because they've been displaced and, and they are, they've had to leave their home because of conflict or discrimination or persecution. And, and so that's even harder because staying distant from others is, 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 is not. Lindsay, did you want to add maybe uh, some perspective on, you know, make it, make it tangible for us. You've, you've spent more than a decade on the ground in so many different countries. Um, what's life like for somebody who's been forced to leave that home, you know, and, and we can talk about the Democratic Republic and Congo, Bangladesh, Jordan, Venezuela, so many countries and millions and millions of people being displaced. Give us a sense of you know, what is, what's really happening on the ground. Yeah, so I mean, living as a refugee is a, is a status that no one would wish to have, you know, forced to, to not only flee your home, possibly, you know, the only place your family has ever known, uh, forced also to leave your country, you know, your sense of identity, and any security that you may have built for yourself. So living as a refugee often means that people are not able eligible to work uh, in the country that's hosting you. And so that means that you can't provide the basics for your family. It, there's no means for you to buy food, to pay for rent. And so you're completely reliant on, you know, the kindness of strangers and humanitarian assistance uh, just to meet your, your basic survival needs. Um, and so I have, uh, as you said, traveled and, and worked um, in countries around the world, um, met with refugees, uh, you know, doctors, teachers, engineers uh, who, you know, have, have forced to flee their home and are now uh, unable to work, um, you know, completely uh, separated from, from their identity and, and, and their ability to, to provide for their families. And, and as a child, you can imagine, you know, the complete disruption and chaos that becoming a refugee causes uh, in a young life you know, ripped from your, from friends, from school, from any sense of normalcy uh, and having, you know, your life completely turned upside down, you know, at three, four, seven, 10 years old. Um, and so, you know, I've met countless children 
who had lives, you know, not much different than my own sons here in Ontario. They went to school, played video games, you know, hung out with friends outside. Uh, and now as refugees have become beggars, uh, are forced to work in the streets to provide for their families, been forced into early marriage um, because as refugees, you know, they have no other choices and, and no safety nets to protect them. And in a, in a you know, unfortunate way, we talk a lot here in Canada and, and sort of the developed world about, you know, the, the impact that being pulled out of school and being stuck at home away from friends has meant for people here because of the pandemic. That's just the normal life, unfortunately, for a refugee, right? But I do think it yeah. creates an opportunity to create empathy, right? Like that, that to me is the key key driver, people understand it, they, they recognize it, we saw it in our survey, but in a way the pandemic, you know, hopefully has, has allowed people to really think about the difference and the, how lucky we really are um, to have lived this pandemic here, as opposed to, you know, in, in Bangladesh. Maybe you could speak specifically about what's happening in, in, in one of the countries, you know, you're working closely with, what's, what's the vaccine rollout like? You know, Sarah talked about just the, the sheer tiny number of, of, of refugees who even get access to a, a vaccine, let alone are being thought of in the planning. Where are, the, where are the big gaps and how do they even access them? Like what maybe can share sort of the, the actual process that might, might typically happen if it's, I know it's not typically even happening, but if it, when it does start happening, hopefully sooner rather than later, what is that going to look like? Yeah. So, I mean, we were, we were really encouraged earlier this year uh, when the government of Bangladesh uh, in February announced that they were revising their national vaccination plans to ensure that the nearly 1 million Rohingya refugees that they host would be a, you know, a priority target group for vaccination. Unfortunately, you know, due to gaps in global vaccine distribution and national supply, vaccination for Rohingya refugees has not yet even begun. Uh, and so this is really concerning for us. You know, the Rohingya are living in the largest displacement camp in the world in Cox's Bazar. Many families are living, you know, nine to 10 people in a tent. Space is incredibly cramped. Access to, to even basic health care, clean water and sanitation continues to be a challenge. Um, and so children and families are left incredibly vulnerable to a you know, large scale outbreak of COVID-19. And so while we have been, you know, encouraged that the worst case scenario has not yet played out in Cox's Bazaar, uh, more than half of the cases of COVID-19 that have been recorded uh, since the beginning of the pandemic were recorded last month. Um, and so we know that the that variants, that the, the rate of infection is increasing. And so it really feels like it's only a matter of time and probably not much time uh, before a widespread outbreak um, in that camp, unless we can roll out vaccination uh, immediately to, to support Rohingya. Um, but again, at this point, not even one um, has been vaccinated. Now, like, just think about that. Like, here in Canada, we worried about our health system not having enough capacity, enough ventilators, enough of the highest technology you can get in healthcare to support a too high number here, but one that was not um, as high as it could get given the conditions in these these camps. So, I mean, the consequence of this spreading rapidly seems to me to be really, really, really bad, right? In terms of just the sheer potential for, for human life to, to be lost. It, can you give us a sense of like, you know, what, what, 
what then is, is going to be done? Like, so let's say governments around the world, you know, wake up and, and invest far more. Um, and others who support organizations like World Vision, you know, donate more money and, and contribute to the work you're doing. Um, how does that, that support actually, you know, make it down? And what, what, what would you use it for to, to make sure that those, those folks are, are really taken care of and, and the, the real high risk is mitigated? Yeah, so I mean, I would say that we have, I mean, we have the the infrastructure and the ability to to do max vaccination programs. You know, we have worked uh, with UNICEF and other partners um, around the world to ensure that children, you know, receive their routine immunizations against things like, you know, malaria, uh, polio, you know, diseases that, you know, are long ago in our in our memory and history. And so we, we know how to do this. Uh, the, the challenge is that we, we just don't have the supply um, and the political will to ensure that those who are most vulnerable, who are most at risk, who are most marginalized and, and forgotten um, when these kinds of uh, uh, campaigns and, and large-scale um, uh, vaccination support need, needs to happen. Um, and so I think we we certainly have the capacity uh, to, to do it um, if the supply was there. Right. So Sarah, let's talk about that supply a little bit, right? Um, the need is so high. And you said even what the G7 committed only really takes us like what 10, 11% of the way of what we actually need in terms of the number of vaccines. What, what could Canada specifically beyond what you've already talked about in terms of, um, you know, using the excess supply that we have and, and sharing it with these, uh, these regions, what else could Canada do? There's, there are a number of really practical, very sort of straightforward things that Canada can do to help reduce this chasm that exists when it comes to, you know, the way that the world is responding to COVID-19 and the, the haves and the have-nots. The vaccine example is, you know, the tip of the, the iceberg, as it were, and there are many other parts of that that play out that make life in this moment harder and will make the recovery harder for those who've been forcibly from their homes. So practically, we Canada can certainly scale up the amount of doses when it comes to the dose question that um, our surplus that can be you know, shared with uh, lower income countries. And there is a high need for those doses to go to, you know, specific populations that are high need and high risk. And it's all through the, the COVAX facility, this facility that nobody thought would become a household name, but is because people now, you know, now know what it is. Um, but that sort of pooled purchasing initiative mm-hmm. to be able to ensure, you know, equity in vaccine distribution worldwide. But there's a need to make sure that 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 is reaching those in humanitarian crisis, those who have been forced to flee their homes, you know, health workers, populations like that, to really focus that in. So more doses and for that plan to be clear and for them to move as soon as possible, because the sooner they move, the sooner we get in front of this um, and the sooner we're able to uh, then move into um, not just health and safety for the world, but for Canadians, too. So Canadians are supportive of that. And you, you mentioned that earlier on. That's something that over 80% of Canadians would say, yep, Canada did that. Great. I, I'd support that. There is a, a big funding gap. Now, Canada has been a strong supporter of something that's, you know, sort of the COVAX umbrella called the, the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator or ACT-A. And 
So Canada was, you know, out front in supporting. Canada has been part of setting up even the vaccine dose sharing mechanisms. So there's a lot that Canada has done there, but there's still a big funding gap. And the fact that um, a good portion, you know, 87 million of the doses that were announced at the G7 were actually from funds that Canada had previously committed, you know, detracts from that. that right. And so there's a need for Canada to, to step up to increase that moving forward. And then Canada also has significant expertise on the technical side to be able to help countries make sure that the national you know, vaccine deployment plans are, are well set up, are rolling out well, um, that health systems are strong enough to receive the vaccines and to get them in time um, to, to local posts and health posts and facilities and to engage communities kind of like here. There are big conversations around um, vaccine hesitancy, which will really impact our ability to hit some of those vaccine target thresholds. Um, and, and so really localized engagement with communities to talk to people, share mm -hmm. the information and help to make decisions is required. Um, and that's especially necessary for refugee populations, because as we were seeing, some of them had heard nothing. Some of them didn't think they were eligible, didn't think they'd be included. And so the hesitancy there is high, especially for displaced populations. I, I want to just, just Sarah and, and Lindsay, if you've got thoughts on this too, I, I'm just adding a, a new element that we didn't even uh, plan to talk about. I just thought of it. And, and you hear, you know, some of the conversations about why is, is for example, President Biden taking such a, a lead role on this, right? He sees this also as a, uh, there's a global kind of political um, side to this, right? That, that we have certain vaccines, the sort of the West and countries like China and, and, and Russia um, are using their vaccines. Like there's, there's almost a game being played around vaccines. Um, but, but there is a reason for us to be more engaged here beyond that it's the right thing to do and it's good for us here. It's that almost like democracies on the, on, on the, on the, you know, on the dais in a way. And is the democratic world, those G7 countries, not gonna, gonna let China, for example, take a leadership role? In, in, in vaccinating the rest of the world. I think, I think that's a really interesting you know, uh, perspective. It's one we didn't test in the survey, but I think um, you know, whether or not the prime minister wants to see himself as the so-called dean of the G7 and be a global leader, you know, the public in our survey you know, don't necessarily see that, right? They don't see a connection between what we say we're going to do and what we actually do. So my sense is there's, there's no real political risk here yet. I bet you feel, Sarah, as someone who engages with government all the time, that it's almost like pulling teeth to get them to, to see the need, or maybe they understand the need, the willingness for them to actually act and, and, and do the right thing. The Canadians certainly see that increasingly uh, we see a dissatisfaction in, you know, what is Canada doing on the global stage? Has the response to COVID-19 globally been enough? And when we looked at that year over year, Canadians, less and less Canadians are feeling like, oh yeah, Can Canada's done enough. I'm happy with the amount that the government is, is um, engaging on the global stage. Canada has been a country traditionally that, you know, that cares beyond our borders, that has risen to the occasion in the past. Yes, because it's the right thing to do. Sure, because there are, you know, geopolitical um, machinations going on in the background, but also because it matters for the health, the safety, um, and, and the economic viability of the Canadian um, citizen. 
And so that is much more front of mind for Canadians. They're a, thinking about it more. They're making those connections and they expect that of their government. And at the same time, you know, double the amount um, feel that Canada's not doing enough at this point. And I think that's an important trend to follow. Yeah, just to just to clarify, we, we asked we did a survey last year and we found about, you know, about 13 percent of Canadians said Canada wasn't doing enough globally. It's more than double to 29 percent. Uh, right now. And there's sizable numbers across the political spectrum who feel that, including those who support the liberal government who say, hey, guys, you know, you're not doing enough here. Um, but beyond sort of government and kind of institutional uh, impacts, Lindsay, you know, what can Canadians themselves, right? Like we have an individual role to play. Um, how have they engaged with World Vision's response around the world? Yeah, so I mean, as we found in the poll, we, we know that Canadians are worried about the risk of, of new variants and, and really understand that the, this pandemic, you know, will not be over. Uh, we won't be able to fully recover until we can get this under control everywhere. Um, and, and we've seen that that support and that understanding uh, in the generosity and action of Canadians uh, who are supporting the work that World Vision does and other humanitarian agencies around the world. And so we, we recently launched a fundraising appeal in partnership with members of the Humanitarian Coalition you know, to respond to the significant surge of COVID-19 in India. And we were able to successfully raise more than $4 million from Canadians. And so there's no doubt that we understand and that we take pride in our ability to support vulnerable people, you know, not only in our own communities, but the, those around the world. And so I know we were at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we were really concerned, um, you know, that donations might decline, uh, you know, to, to agencies like ours, um, as Canadians struggled with, you know, economic shutdowns and, and layoffs, you know, the impact on people's um, employment security. Um, but I have to say, you know, we've been incredibly humbled by the dedication and commitment uh, to maintaining support for the work um, that we do from Canadians across the country. And so, you know, there, there's no doubt in my mind that Canadians are incredibly generous, you know, that we understand that we have, you know, the means and capabilities to ensure that Canadians are protected from COVID-19, uh, but also that we can extend support to ensure that no one is left behind uh, in, in this global pandemic and our response. Encourage everybody. I'm going to make a donation right after this podcast to make sure that, that you guys can keep doing the work that you're doing. Um, I, I want to end, uh, Sarah. And, and Lindsay, if you've got perspectives, love to hear them. This is a podcast about kind of the intersection of politics and public opinion. And Sarah, the polling we did really shows um, that there's a lot of support and, and willingness of Canadians to get behind this. But we're likely headed to an election this year. Um, you know, all the talk here in Ottawa is, the, you know, August or September. So, you know, what, what do you see as the potential political implications uh, for the liberal government, I, I mean, they're 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 fixated on getting us as vac, you know, as, as many of us vaccinated as possible, and I think that's a good objective. But I think to all of our conversation today, that's not enough to end this pandemic, right? It's it's we, we can we can't keep our borders closed, and we can't stop you know traveling and trade um, and expect life to be normal again unless those things change. So. You know, what, what do you think are the political implications of this? I, I know the New Democrats have been, you know, arguing for more investments. Um, you even had Aaron O'Toole come out and say, look, we're going to reverse a position we had in the last election. We're not going to cut international development spending. It seems that there's a, a, a shift afoot that 
um, there's opportunities here, political opportunities to, to, to have a conversation about this, because in my view, um, I think you, you won't be able to, uh, you know, um, you won't be able to claim victory, which I think the liberals want to do until this is, is really dealt with everywhere. Sarah, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, the, the vaccine equity gap is, like we've said, one example of a much broader gap that exists for the world's most vulnerable people. And that includes, you know, like we've talked about refugees um, and then those living in wealthier countries, um, their ability to weather the pandemic, their ability to recover from it, that gap's not new. And that's something that, you know, World Vision and others talk about every election. But I think what is unique and what is different this year is how much the global has come to the forefront of the minds of Canadians. Um, so that makes things quite different this year uh, because it's directly impacting their lives. And as long as the pandemic rages everywhere, more lives will be lost, new variants could emerge, no one's safe. And I'm not trying to fear monger, but that ending that pandemic is essential for all of those things. It's essential for opening up our borders, starting to rebuild our economy. These are core planks for an election that is going to be won by whoever presents themselves as best able to take us through the recovery. Um, and so uh, whenever that election falls, that's what it's going to be about. It's who's positioned best to do that. And the Liberals will bring into the election their performance on how they've weathered the pandemic, how they've stood with Canadians through, that's the commitment. And so like you've mentioned, vaccine rollout domestically is one of the levers to accomplish that, to help us weather and to help us recover. But it is only one and to not have committed fully as much as we could on the global stage will be something that if, as we get close to an election, we still have you know, lockdown risks, we still have variants that could ricochet back into Canada, that is something that is going to weigh in on what people decide to do at the polls ultimately. Yeah, um, and I do come into the election. Yeah, I do think there's there's risk here for the liberals. I think, you know, we released a poll just this morning that showed liberals ahead, um, but by not by any means a safe margin. And they're worried about their left flank, new Democrats, especially among young people, young women. Um, the liberals appear vulnerable. And I just think that 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 they they are taking for granted the fact that people aren't listening or thinking about these things and want to plan and want to see us engage. Lindsay, maybe you could speak to, um, I'm curious if, if you've got a perspective on this, on how is Canada perceived on the ground? Um, does that ever come up? Like, you know, we always talk about Canada's back and we're engaging internationally. What's your sense of the country's reputation as, you know, as a country that, that, that is generous and contributes its fair share. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that, um, you know, most people that I talk to when I, when I say that I'm from Canada, um, are, are really encouraged and, and do see us as, uh, as a nation of people who are kind and generous and who, uh, are, are welcoming. So I, we definitely have, uh, that reputation, um, and, and an opportunity, I would say, and, you know, in our response to this pandemic to, to reinforce that and to, to, to make good on that promise, uh, that, uh, we have, uh, you know, shared with the world, uh, and presented ourselves to the world as being, uh, you know, uh, kind, generous, um, global player. Well, um, Sarah and Lindsay, uh, this has been 
uh, a really fascinating conversation. Um, working with you, uh, Sarah, over the last few weeks is this, I've, I always learn something new and, and get a much better perspective of first how lucky I am and how much more we need to do. Um, Lindsay, last question. I'm, I'm just curious, what ha how has the pandemic affected the work you, you, you do on a tactical level, like your ability to go um, to these, these countries and, and to meet with people? I, I, am, I assume it's, it's changed a lot of how you work. Yeah, it absolutely has. I mean, this last 18 months uh, or so since the pandemic began is the, you know, it's the longest uh, I have been in Canada uh, in my career as a humanitarian. So in more than 15 years, this is the longest I've ever been on Canadian soil, uh, you know, consecutively. So, I mean, it's changed the way that I, that we engage with our teams and our colleagues in the field, you know, much more reliance, obviously, on, on uh, online technology. Um, and, uh, but I think it has um, also really, um, you know, helped us to understand and to, and to empower the, you know, our colleagues that are in the fields that are on the front lines, you know, doing this work um, every day, uh, and has really brought, um, you know, the challenges and the, and the opportunities that they face uh, to, to life for us in a, in a way that we haven't um, seen before. Um, but absolutely looking forward uh, to the days that we can travel again um, and get closer uh, to, to the, the communities that we serve. Well, um, again, thank you for all the work that you do and Sarah for, for your advocacy work and, 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 and just raising these issues onto the agenda, reminding us that, you know, our comfortable little lives here in Canada no, the pale in comparison to how hard other people, um, you know, are going, uh, how hard other people's lives are. So have wonderful uh, weekends and, and thank you so much again for, for joining the conversation. Thanks, David. Thanks for working with us ahead of World Refugee Day. Thanks very much.